Chapter 3 of The Terror, A Mystery This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Gerzinski The Terror by Arthur Machen Chapter 3 The Doctor's Theory It is not easy to make any picture of the horror that lay dark on the hearts of the peoples of Marion. It was no longer possible to believe or to pretend to believe that these men and women and children had met their deaths through strange accidents. The little girl and the young laborer might have slipped and fallen over the cliffs, but the woman who lay dead with the dead sheep at the bottom of the quarry, the two men who had been lured into the ooze of the marsh, the family who were found murdered on the highway before their own cottage door. In these cases there could be no room for the supposition of accident. It seemed as if it were impossible to frame any conjecture or outline of conjecture that would account for these hideous and, as it seemed, utterly purposeless crimes. For a time people said that there must be a madman at large, a sort of country variant of Jack the Ripper, some horrible pervert who was possessed by the passion of death, who prowled darkling about that lonely land, hiding in woods and in wild places, always watching and seeking for the victims of his desire. Indeed, Dr. Lewis, who found poor Williams, his wife and children, miserably slaughtered on the highway, was convinced at first that the presence of a concealed madman in the countryside offered the only possible solution to the difficulty. I felt sure, he said to me afterwards, that the Williams had been killed by a homicidal maniac. It was the nature of the poor creature's injuries that convinced me that this was the case. Some years ago, thirty-seven or thirty-eight years ago, as a matter of fact, I had something to do with a case which on the face of it had a strong likeness to the highway murder. At that time I had practice at Usk, in Monmouthshire. A whole family living in a cottage by the roadside were murdered one evening. It was called, I think, the Langeby murder. The cottage was near the village of that name. The murderer was caught in Newport. He was a Spanish sailor named Garcia, and it appeared that he had killed father, mother, and the three children, for the sake of the brass works of an old Dutch clock which were found on him when he was arrested. Garcia had been serving a month's imprisonment at Usk Jail for some small theft, and on his release he set out to walk to Newport, nine or ten miles away, no doubt to get another ship. He passed the cottage and saw the man working in his garden. Garcia stabbed him with his sailor's knife. The wife rushed out. He stabbed her. Then he went into the cottage and stabbed the three children, tried to set the place on fire, and made off with the clockworks. That looked like the deed of a madman, but Garcia wasn't mad. They hanged him, I may say. He was merely a man of a very low type, a degenerate who hadn't the slightest value for human life. I am not sure, but I think he came from one of the Spanish islands, where the people are said to be degenerates, very likely from too much interbreeding. 
But my point is that Garcia stabbed to kill and did kill, with one blow in each case. There was no senseless hacking and slashing. Now those poor people on the highway had their heads smashed to pieces by what must have been a storm of blows. Any one of them would have been fatal. But the murderer must have gone on raining blows with his iron hammer on people who were already stone dead. And that sort of thing is the work of a madman, and nothing but a madman. That's how I argue the matter out to myself just after the event. I was utterly wrong, monstrously wrong. But who could have suspected the truth? Thus, Dr. Lewis, and I quote him or the substance of him, as representative of most of the educated opinion of the district at the beginnings of the terror. People seized on this theory largely because it offered at least the comfort of an explanation. And any explanation, even the poorest, is better than an intolerable and terrible mystery. Besides, Dr. Lewis's theory was plausible. It explained the lack of purpose that seemed to characterize the murders. And yet, there were difficulties even from the first. It was hardly possible that a strange madman should be able to keep hidden in a countryside where any stranger is instantly noted and noticed. Sooner or later he would be seen as he prowled along the lanes or across the wild places. Indeed, a drunken, cheerful, and altogether harmless tramp was arrested by a farmer and his man in the fact and act of sleeping off beer under a hedge, but the vagrant was able to prove complete and undoubted alibis and was soon allowed to go on his wandering way. Then another theory, or rather a variant of Dr. Lewis's theory, was started. This was to the effect that the person responsible for the outrages was indeed a madman, but a madman only at intervals. It was one of the members of the Porth Club, a certain Mr. Remnant, who was supposed to have originated this more subtle explanation. Mr. Remnant was a middle-aged man who, having nothing particular to do, read a great many books by way of conquering the hours. He talked to the club, doctors, retired colonels, parsons, lawyers, about personality quoted various psychological textbooks in support of his contention that personality was sometimes fluid and unstable, went back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as good evidence of this proposition, and laid stress on Dr. Jekyll's speculation that the human soul, so far from being one and indivisible, might possibly turn out to be a mere polity a state in which dwelt many strange and incongruous citizens, whose characters were not merely unknown but altogether unsurmised by that form of consciousness which so rashly assumed that it was not only the President of the Republic but also its sole citizen. The long and the short of it is, Mr. Remnant concluded, that any one of us may be the murderer, though he hasn't the faintest notion of the fact. Take Llewellyn there. Mr. Payne Llewellyn was an elderly lawyer, a rural Tulkinghorn. He was the hereditary solicitor to the Morgans of Pentwyn. This does not sound anything tremendous to the Saxons of London, but the style is far more than noble to the Celts of West Wales. It is immemorial. 
Tilosant was of the collaterals of the first known chief of the race, and Mr. Payne Llewellyn did his best to look like the legal adviser of this ancient house. He was weighty, he was cautious, he was sound, he was secure. I have compared him to Mr. Tulkinghorn of Lincoln's Inn Fields, but Mr. Llewellyn would most certainly never have dreamed of employing his leisure in peering into the cupboards where the family skeletons were hidden. Supposing such cupboards to have existed, Mr. Payne Llewellyn would have risked large out-of-pocket expenses to furnish them with double, triple, impregnable locks. He was a new man, an advina, certainly, for he was partly of the conquest, being descended on one side from Sir Payne Turbeville, but he meant to stand by the old stock. "'Take Llewellyn now,' said Mr. Remnant. "'Look here, Llewellyn. Can you produce evidence to show where you were on the night those people were murdered on the highway? I thought not.' Mr. Llewellyn, an elderly man, as I have said, hesitated before speaking. "'I thought not,' Remnant went on. "'Now I say that it is perfectly possible that Llewellyn may be dealing death throughout Marion.' although in his present personality he may not have the faintest suspicion that there is another Llewellyn within him, a Llewellyn who follows murder as a fine art. Mr. Payne Llewellyn did not at all relish Mr. Remnant's suggestion that he might well be a secret murderer, ravening for blood, remorseless as a wild beast. He thought the phrase about his following murder as a fine art was both nonsensical and in the worst taste, and his opinion was not changed when Remnant pointed out that it was used by De Quincey in the title of one of his most famous essays. "'If you had allowed me to speak,' he said with some coldness of manner, "'I would have told you that on Tuesday last, the night on which those unfortunate people were murdered on the highway, I was staying at the Angel Hotel, Cardiff.' I had business in Cardiff, and I was detained till Wednesday afternoon. Having given this satisfactory alibi, Mr. Payne Llewellyn left the club, and did not go near it for the rest of the week. Remnant explained to those who stayed in the smoking-room that, of course, he had merely used Mr. Llewellyn as a concrete example of his theory, which, he persisted, had the support of a considerable body of evidence. There are several cases of double personality on record, he declared, and I say again that it is quite possible that these murders may have been committed by one of us in his secondary personality. Why, I may be the murderer in my Remnant B state, though Remnant A knows nothing whatever about it, and is perfectly convinced that he could not kill a fowl, much less a whole family. Isn't it so, Lewis? Dr. Lewis said it was so, in theory, but he thought not, in fact. Most of the cases of double or multiple personalities that have been investigated, he said, have been in connection with the very dubious experiments of hypnotism, or the still more dubious experiments of spiritualism. All that sort of thing, in my opinion, is like tinkering with the works of a clock. Amateur tinkering, I mean. You fumble about with the wheels and cogs and bits of mechanism that you don't really know anything about, and then you find your clock going backwards, striking 2.40 at tea-time. 
and I believe it's just the same thing with these psychical research experiments. The secondary personality is very likely the result of the tinkering and fumbling with a very delicate apparatus that we know nothing about. Mind, I can't say that it's impossible for one of us to be the highway murderer in this B-state, as Remnant puts it, but I think it's extremely improbable. Probability is the guide of life, you know, Remnant, said Dr. Lewis, smiling at that gentleman as if to say that he had also done a little reading in his day. And it follows, therefore, that improbability is also the guide of life. When you get a very high degree of probability, that is, you are justified in taking it as a certainty. And on the other hand, if a supposition is highly improbable, you are justified in treating it as an impossible one, that is, in 999 cases out of a thousand. How about the thousandth case, said Remnant, supposing these extraordinary crimes constitute the thousandth case? The doctor smiled and shrugged his shoulders, being tired of the subject. But for some little time, highly respectable members of Porth society would look suspiciously at one another, wondering whether, after all, there mightn't be something in it. However, both Mr. Remnant's somewhat crazy theory and Dr. Lewis's plausible theory became untenable when two more victims of an awful and mysterious death were offered up in sacrifice. For a man was found dead in the Lanvihangel quarry where the woman had been discovered, and on the same day a girl of fifteen was found broken on the jagged rocks under the cliffs near Porth. Now it appeared that these two deaths must have occurred at about the same time, within an hour of one another certainly, and the distance between the quarry and the cliffs by Black Rock is certainly twenty miles. A motor could do it, one man said, but it was pointed out that there was no high road between the two places. Indeed, it might be said that there was no road at all between them. There was a network of deep, narrow, and tortuous lands that wandered into one another at all manner of queer angles for, say, seventeen miles. This in the middle, as it were, between Black Rock and the quarry at Lanvehangel. But to get to the high road at the cliffs, one had to take the path that went through two miles of fields, and the quarry lay a mile away from the nearest by-road in the midst of gorse and bracken and broken land. And finally, there was no track of motor-car or motor-bicycle in the lanes which must have been followed to pass from one place to the other. "'What about an airplane, then?' said the man of the motor-car theory. "'Well, there was certainly an aerodrome not far from one of the two places of death, but somehow nobody believed that the Flying Corps harbored a homicidal maniac. It seemed clear, therefore, then there must be more than one person concerned in the terror of Marion, and Dr. Lewis himself abandoned his own theory. As I said to Remnant at the club, he remarked, improbability is the guide of life. I can't believe that there are a pack of madmen, or even two madmen at large in the country. I give it up. And now a fresh circumstance or set of circumstances became manifest to confound judgment and to awaken new and wild surmises. 
for at about this time people realized that none of the dreadful events that were happening all about them was so much as mentioned in the press. I have already spoken of the fate of the Myros Observer. This paper was suppressed by the authorities because it had inserted a brief paragraph about some person who had been found dead under mysterious circumstances. I think that paragraph referred to the first death of Lanfehangel's quarry. Thenceforth, horror followed on horror, but no word was printed in any of the local journals. The curious went to the newspaper offices, there were two left in the county, but found nothing save her firm refusal to discuss the matter. And the card of papers were drawn and found blank, and the London press was apparently ignorant of the fact that crimes that had no parallel were terrorizing a whole countryside. Everybody wondered what could have happened, what was happening, and then it was whispered that the coroner would allow no inquiry to be made as to these deaths of darkness. In consequence of instructions received from the Home Office, one coroner was understood to have said, I have to tell the jury that their business will be to hear the medical evidence and to bring in a verdict immediately in accordance with that evidence. I shall disallow all questions. One jury protested. The foreman refused to bring in any verdict at all. Very good, said the coroner. Then I beg to inform you, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen of the jury, that under the Defense of the Realm Act, I have power to supersede your functions, and to enter a verdict according to the evidence which has been laid before the court, as if it had been the verdict of you all. The foreman and jury collapsed and accepted what they could not avoid, but the rumors that got abroad of all this added to the known fact that the terror was ignored in the press, no doubt by official command, increased the panic that was now arising and gave it a new direction. Clearly, people reasoned, these government restrictions and prohibitions could only refer to the war, to some great danger in connection with the war. And that being so, it followed that the outrages which must be kept so secret were the work of the enemy, that is, of concealed German agents. End of chapter 3